from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. John chapter 11 this morning. Every week, I try to work something in from Sunday school into the message. This morning, it comes very, very early. Because someone in Sunday school this morning was very kind to me in my sermons and says, you know, Gary has a great introduction and just gets you hooked. Gary's introduction this morning is, since this is a long text, let's immediately turn to it now. (laughs) Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Most of the time. Uh, What a letdown. I mean, people in Sunday school have been looking forward to this for like 30 minutes, and it's just John 11. But it is a long text this morning. Uh, Room for the closing. That's right. I got to drive it home at at the end. But John 11 this morning, we are going there. It's a familiar story of the Bible. It involves a familiar family. Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It contains the fifth I am statement of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. It contains the last of the seven signs that we have been tracking uh, and and studying through the first 11 chapters of John, and and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Contains the shortest Bible or Bible verse in Scripture, which is John 10:35, which says what. Jesus wept. Very good. And since it is a long text, let's turn to it and read it this morning. So we're going to be reading John 1, or excuse me, John 11, verse 1 through 44. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, she, when she, said, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come in with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could he not, who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's quite a story. It's quite a chapter. And in in it, we do indeed see the glory of God. And as we study it this morning, I want us to study it by looking at the interactions that occur in this chapter. And the first one, first interaction is Jesus and the disciples. Immediately, John sets the setting for us and provides a lot of details. He tells us that there is a family. And note how well-known the family is because though they are from Bethany, it is called the village of Mary and Martha. That's an interesting designation. It's not Lazarus's village. It's the village of Mary and Martha. So the family, especially the the sisters, were well-known in the town. In fact, Mary is so well-known, it says, is Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. Now, the interesting thing about that is that doesn't happen until John chapter 12. So remember, John is not writing a diary. He is writing as he looks back, but he includes it here because everybody knows what Mary did in John chapter 12. And we are told that this family loves one another. I mean, they, they, they have such a great love for each other that Jesus loves them that when their brother Lazarus was dead, they sent a messenger to Jesus. And the message is very simple. Look at the, the, the message is amazing. It says in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love 
is ill. They, they recognized, they knew that Jesus loved Lazarus, had a connection with him and cared about him. And so they sent for Jesus to, to come to Lazarus because they have seen the miracles. They know what Jesus is, is capable of. But then John tells us why all of this is happening. Jesus says in verse 4, and I think I enjoy John's gospel because he tells us what is happening. He says, This illness does not lead to death, but that everything that has happened is going to glorify God. Now, if you ask me, verse 4, the tension escalates quickly, does it not? Jesus, the one that you love is sick, and then Jesus says, Don't worry, he's not going to die. Wait a minute. <laughs> We, we just jumped from sickness to death really quickly. What has happened? Jesus says, and John revealing Jesus' statement, is preparing the disciples and preparing us today that everything that we're going to read in this chapter, as amazing as everything is, has the singular purpose that God may be glorified. It has the purpose that through God's glorification that Jesus is going to be glorified as well. And as they, he does that, what it real, reveals again, remember when Jesus said just a, a, the previous chapter, the Father and I, and we, we are one. There is a unity of, of will. There is a unity of glory that is going to happen and be displayed to us as we go through this chapter. And we have to keep that in the back of our minds because it helps explain some of the situations that occur in this chapter. Jesus is told Lazarus is sick, and what does Jesus do? I mean, what, he, right? He, he turns around, tells the disciples, let's go, jumps on his donkey that he, he has had since Mary rode him, right? Kept him in a little barn, jumps on his donkey, and the donkey gallops. Do donkeys gallop? I don't know what donkeys do, Right? gallops all the way to Bethany, right? Because that's what we would do, right? We don't read this here, but the equivalent today of, of Lazarus is ill, the equivalent to that is the doctor looking at you saying, you need to call the family. The, the, the family needs to be here. And when you get that phone call, what do you do? You stop everything that you are doing. And you go and you get in your car and, and you go and you're with your family. It's a serious situation. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, it says he remains. He stays for two more days. And then all of a sudden, two days later, he pops up to the disciples and say, Hey, let's go to Judea again. Let's, let's, let's head down there. Now, the disciples have no idea, right? We've been told they don't know that Lazarus is going to die. They don't really know what is going on. So they're willing to wait for those two days with Jesus in Bethany, or, or Jesus outside across the Jordan. They're willing to stay with him. And so when Jesus says, let's go, and he doesn't reveal their destination, right? He doesn't say we're going to Bethany. He says we're going to Judea. Now, yes, Bethany is in Judea, but he doesn't tell them that we're going this first time to see Lazarus. And so we, we, we've, we've got a conflict here. Why does Jesus wait? Because Jesus' actions, if we really want to think about it, doesn't align with the Jesus we think we know, right? 
the Jesus uh, we think we know would immediately be there. He would stop everything for us. Yeah, this is not the first time in John's gospel where people have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want you to do something. And Jesus has said, no. And in doing so, it, it teaches us a lesson. And that is Jesus, while he is on earth and on his mission, he does not allow external forces to drive him to action. Because if anything would, this one would, wouldn't it? Right? He, he loves Lazarus. So surely right now that external force would drive him to do something. But Jesus' sole act is to do the will of God. And he will do the will of God when the time is right. When Jesus acts, that is the right time. Not before. Not after. But in that moment. And so it's a good reminder to us this morning that it is not Jesus who is responsible to bend his will to ours. It is us who is responsible to bend our will to Jesus. Because for every action that Jesus performs is in perfect coordination with the will of God the Father. And if we want to be in, <clears throat> and we want to be in God's will and we want to be following God's will, then we're going to recognize that we have to bend our will to his. It is not the other way around. And I know that sounds harsh. I know that sounds painful. That is the way it works. And in the working of it that way, what we end up seeing on the end, even though we want it to, to, to work in reverse, we see God's glory manifested in our lives through Christ working in us when our will aligns with the Father's. So Jesus finally looks up to him and says, hey, let's go. And the disciples are going to Judea. They're like, hey, Jesus, uh, they're going to kill you. Right? He, they think they're going to confront the religious leaders. And, and, and they say, you know, they're going to, to kill you. And, and Jesus says, you know, look, there's 12 hours in the day. What? <laughs> you notice how many times somebody says something to Jesus in the Gospel of John, and he says something, and you just go, I have no idea what the connection is there, right? Jesus sometimes is, doesn't connect all the dots, but we can go back in Scripture and see. Because we know that we've been told that in John chapter 9, verse 4, that we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one will work. So Jesus looks at His disciples and says, Look, while I'm here, I have to continue to work. And though people are looking to kill me, looking to take my life, that does not prevent me from accomplishing the work of the one who has sent us to do. Soon Jesus will be crucified. It will be night. And in the night the disciples will stumble. And he says to them, until then, stay with me and let's do the works of God. There's still work to be done. And so let me ask that question because it seems then that it would imply that we are working in the dark today, would it not? Yeah, we, we know something that we haven't gotten to in John yet. We haven't gotten to John 16 yet. And the reason that we don't work in the dark today is because in John 16, it is revealed to us that it is for our advantage that Jesus goes away because when Jesus goes away, he sends who? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit then is with us now, equipping us to do the work of Jesus. So we can do the work in the light because we take the Holy Spirit with us. Wherever we go, the Holy Spirit is in us and going, and we take the light of Christ and the Holy Spirit and God with us. 
But Jesus right now is talking about his physical presence with the disciples. He says, look, we, we, we've got to work, work now. Let's keep working. So let's go. We're going to go do some work. And by the way, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> right? He tells them, and again, says Lazarus is asleep, and they misunderstand. Hey, if he's asleep, he, he's going to wake up and, and recover. And Jesus finally, like Jesus, speaks plainly. Right? Remember again, the, the re- religious leader said, speak plainly. Here he's speaking plainly. Lazarus is dead. And then he says again, notice the shocking statements in here. And by the way, I'm glad I wasn't there. Has, has anyone ever said that? When someone close to you has died and you looked and said, man, I'm glad I wasn't there. Um, Jesus, why, why, um, why are you glad that you were not there? But again, he answers. I'm, I'm glad when Jesus gives these difficult statements, he answers. He says, look, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. You don't know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. We're going to go there so that the glory of God can be revealed. And when the glory of God is revealed, that you may believe. Right? I mean, we look at this and we think, these are the disciples. Why do they not believe? Surely, right? We, we, let's put on our super Christian hat. If I was a disciple, I would have believed. You know? I don't need to see nothing else. I, yeah, I, I would have. Remind me again how many times it took before you confessed Jesus was Lord. And then we'll talk about that. This is, again, it's, it's a great point for us to, to think about. And, and it kind of goes to the idea that we don't have a perfect faith. Our faith is, is always growing. And at this moment, the disciples' faith is not unshakable. And in a few chapters, we're going to see that. Jesus is on the cross, and you can't find a disciple anywhere. We're going to see that their faith was shaken. So Jesus tells them, hey, what you're about to see in just a few, in a a day or so, is going to deepen your faith. And this is a good lesson for us. There's always a deeper faith within us than we realize. Events, trials, people come into our lives in such a manner as to deepen our faith. Found a, gr- a wonderful quote. It says, quote, and he's talking about his own faith here. It says, quote, It is hard to know one's faith till some severe test comes. I believe in some measure of that I'm quite sure, but in which measure I do not know. I pray God to do for me or to me or in me whatever will have the result that I may believe. That's a powerful quote. Right? Gary, do you believe Jesus is... Yes, I confess Him. He is Lord and Savior. I, I, I do. I am, I am saved. I have a measure of faith in me, but how strong that faith is, I don't know. Until something comes into my life, or something comes into your life, that requires you to examine the measure of faith that you actually have. And as we want our faith to grow stronger, We ought to pray that prayer, and it's a difficult prayer. God, do to me, for me, or in me, whatever will have the result that I may believe. 
that my faith may be made stronger. Jesus is saying, guys, what's about to happen? Your faith will be made stronger. But they're still not understanding. So Thomas, this, this doubting Thomas, right? It's not Peter for once. Thomas gets so much slack, right? And like nobody else in that room doubted. But here Thomas speaks up. I'm glad we have this picture of Thomas. Thomas stands up and, and he looks and, and he just makes a logical statement. But it's a, a tremendous statement of faith. Let's go that we may die with him. Saddle up, boys. Here we go. All right. I mean, Thomas recognizes in that moment that if they go back to Judea and they kill Jesus, they're going to kill his followers. That Thomas and John and James and Peter and Matthew, they're all in much peril as Jesus is. But Thomas says, I'm willing to go. I mean, it, it, that's a declaration of faith right there. I'm willing to die for him. I am willing to stand up for Christ, even in the face of the death. Again, a bold statement. Is that something that we could make? We don't talk about needing the boldness of Thomas, but often we talk about the boldness of Peter, the boldness of Paul. We need to be as bold as Thomas. Stand up. We'll confess Christ. I don't care what the world or what secular philosophy says. We will stand with Jesus and we will stand with the truth even in the midst of hostility, even if that means. doesn't mean that we want it, but even if that means we die for our faith. So Jesus has this interaction with the disciples. And then the second interaction we see is with Mary and Martha. Two days later, Jesus gets, uh, gets to, to Bethany. Actually, it's been three days. Day one is the messenger. Jesus waits two days. He arrives on day four. And we're told that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And this is an important detail. It tells us a whole lot. One of the things it tells us is that when Jesus in verse 3 says, wait a minute, you know, this illness won't lead to death. Lazarus is already dead. Jesus knows he's dead. He knew he was dead when the messenger comes. So when the messenger comes, and we don't know for sure, it is either then, the moment he tells, or the moment after. But on day one of Jesus come see Lazarus, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus waits Two more days. It also tells us that Lazarus is, and I couldn't think of how else to describe this other than to say, really dead. <laughs> right? He, he, he's, he, he's really, really dead. All right? We have to remind ourselves, we live in a day and age with all kinds of medical devices that we can, you know, quantify somebody is, is dead if they're brain dead or if their heart has stopped beating. We have ways that we can test the validity of this person is dead. Most of the world's history did not have that. And while not common, it was not uncommon that somebody you thought was dead really wasn't dead. <laughs> right? And so it, it, you had this. It, 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 you know how you know this? You, you know this, but you don't know this. How many of you have heard the term Irish wake? Right? Do you know what the wake was for? To see if the person was dead. Part of that was to see if the person was actually dead. 
Now, they may have borrowed it from uh, Jewish history because Jews uh, kind of thought the same way too. They, they had this idea that the, the Spirit would hover over the body for, for three days and in case, you know, the person popped up and was alive on day two, well, they were just really sick on day one, but they weren't dead. They may have looked dead, but they weren't. You know, they, they explained it as the Spirit re-entering the body. But by, by day four, the body starts to change. <laughs> by day four, there are visible signs that, that you know that the, the, the person is dead. It also tells us that Mary and Martha know that he is dead. Right? I mean, they know that he is dead. That's why they keep saying, Jesus, if you were here, our brother would not be dead. They know it. They have passed the day where the Spirit could re-enter. So the only way, the only hope Lazarus has at restoration of life is through a divine act of power. Jesus says, I'm going so that God may be glorified. It is better for me, better for you that I have not went so that you may believe. Jesus is leading them to see that there is going to be a divine act of his power that can only be explained as he is the one sent by God, that he is God in the flesh. So as Jesus is approaching the town, Martha comes out and leaves Mary in the, in, in the house. And again, we see how, how well known the family was because we're told that as he was uh, two miles off in verse 19, many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them from Jerusalem. I mean, they're, they're a prominent family. And they've, they've come to, to mourn with her. And part of the customs uh, uh, of that day was the family would sit and people would come. And you still see this in the Jewish community today. And I have to be careful of how I pronounce this. How many of you are familiar with the term to sit shiva? Have you all heard that in the Jewish community? That, that's, that's what it is. The family of the person who died sits in their house and stays in their house. They don't leave the house, and the, everybody in the community comes to them, brings them food, takes care of everything, but for three or four days, all they do is sit. Actually, I think it's seven days. They sit. So when we read this, Martha goes out to meet Jesus, and, and, and I say this because I don't want Mary to, to, to be degraded for this. Mary is doing the custom of the time. Mary is, is performing her duty. And sometimes you have to perform your duty. So Mary is doing just that. She's not neglecting Jesus. Jesus would know what she is doing. Martha comes out to Jesus and looks around, and just the, the situation is, is, is so heartbreaking. And she just looks at Jesus and says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, if you, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. If you, if you had been here. I mean, our, our heartstrings tug. Because we've thought the same thing. We've probably prayed the same thing. Jesus, if you just would have done something, our, 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 my loved one wouldn't have died. I, I mean, we sympathize with Mary. And Jesus looks at her, and again, this is a beautiful conversation. Jesus says, look, your brother will rise again. It's not a rebuke, just saying your brother will rise again. And look at the understanding that, that Martha has, not of what Jesus is about to do, but her understanding of, of, of scriptures. 
She says in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last days. That means that she has been told. That means that she has listened. That means that she understands scriptures. That, that, that means that she can look and say, Jesus, I, I know. Maybe she's heard Jesus teach about it. Maybe she's heard some rabbis teach about it. We don't know how she knows, but she knows. Because in the Old Testament, there is the resurrection is there. It, it's sprinkled. It's not fully developed, but, but it's there. Right? Job says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet my flesh, I shall see God. That's resurrection. Hosea, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Isaiah, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isaiah, again, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You will dwell in the dust, awake, and, and you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. The Psalms, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see the cave. The, the idea of the resurrection is in the Old Testament, and, and Martha recognizes it, and she says to Jesus, look, I believe, I have enough faith that it's, it's going to happen. I don't, I don't fully understand it, but it's going to happen. I know when that last day is, whenever the last day is, he, he will rise, and Jesus just looks at her and, and just drops this on her. I am the resurrection and the life. The, the resurrection you are looking for, that you know that you will see in the last day, the resurrection that you are looking toward to in the future is standing right before you now. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, I, I, everything that you know I, I, it points to me. Again, I'm the fulfillment of everything that you know from the Old Testament. I am the resurrection. And, and, and notice the, notice the word the in front of both of those. It doesn't say I am resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. There is no life and there is no resurrection outside of Jesus. None whatsoever. And as he's looking at her and tells her that, he says, I'm standing before you, which tells us that resurrection and life is not some abstract future idea. It is an unequivocal guarantee that the resurrection and the life that you want, that you hope for and long for, is contained right now in me. I have it. He is. Not anybody else, not something else. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. And this is what makes believers so different from the rest of the world. Even if uh, someone says, well, I'm a, a, a Buddhist or I'm a, I'm a Muslim or I'm Hindu or I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish or, or whatever religion, it's this statement right here. Because in that statement is a guarantee for us that death is not the end. That for us, death is just the beginning of life. 
And you may think, well, Gary, other religions make that same promise. But here's the difference. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. It, it, it's at the whim of their God, little g, or it is at the fate of the universe. Whether on your deathbed, you may or may not end up in heaven. There is no guarantee. To die in a false religion is the same as to die in no religion. It is only through Jesus Christ that we are guaranteed resurrection and life. And that is why for a believer, death does not frighten us. Right? I, I use this illustration at all my funerals of believers. And I do it on purpose because for us, death is it's, it's just a door. It's, it's a door. And it opens to eternal life and fellowship with God for all eternity. And, and one day, prayerfully, many, 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 many years, decades, decades, decades in the future, I will walk through that door. Right? Half a century from now. <laughs> it's just really weird talking about your death. You don't think so. You try it one time. But this, this is what I know. I'll walk through it. And this could be so much less than a, me- a moment that I don't even know how to quantify it. That when I walk through it, I'm going to experience what Jesus says right here. That he is the resurrection and the life. And I'm just going to walk through the portal of death to be with my Lord and Savior for all eternity. So I don't have to fear. Believers don't have to fear. But to have that guarantee, there has to be an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And he looks at Martha. And he just, just ask her at the end of verse 26, do you believe this? Do you believe this? How many of you have ever, when talking about confessions of faith in Scripture, of who Jesus is, have ever said, hey, have you ever considered Martha's confession of faith in Jesus? Look at what she says. Do you believe this? Yes. That's pretty good. Gets better. Yes, Lord. I recognize who you are. You are the Lord. And and then she goes on. It keeps getting better. I believe that you are the Christ. Whoa. The religious leaders earlier proved to us that you are the Christ. Show us something so that we know that you are the Christ. And here is Martha, a woman, and don't let that fact slip you. She would not be considered learned. You would not want to take Torah lessons from a woman. You want to listen to the religious leaders that looked right, that had uh, all the, the right entrappings, and were men. And here Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the son, that you are the Christ. I believe that you are who you say you are, even though the religious leaders want to know if you are. I believe, I know. And she continues, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God. I believe you are the unique one and only son of God sent perfectly to do the will of the father. That he sent you. And it keeps getting better. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the God, who is coming into the world. I believe you came into this world to accomplish God's will. 
And I believe you came in to accomplish his will that says that you are going to the cross, that you are going to die for our sins, that you have brought salvation to us now. That is an amazing, amazing statement of belief that we sometimes overlook in Scripture. Lord, yes, Lord, I believe you are indeed who you say you are. But then finally Mary comes out and the, the, the people coming out follow her and, and, and she expresses the same regret as, as Jesus, or excuse me, as, as Martha does. If you were here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. And, and, and again, something interesting happens that we got to pay attention to. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's an odd statement with odd language. The deeply moved is only used five times in Scripture or in the New Testament. Every place it is used, it is usually translated scolded. The, the literal interpretation that, that is used outside of Scripture is about horses when they snort. It, it is a mark of derision, which is an interesting question. Why would Jesus be mad? Why, why would Jesus be deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled? I mean, surely Jesus is not mad at them for expressing normal human emotion at the death of someone that they loved. And, and, and you would be right. That is not why he is upset. See, the weeping that is being done here by Mary and the others is not normal tears shed in the time of sorrow. To, to really press the point, it could be uh, called performative. It, it, it's welling. And, and I've only seen this once in my life. We're in our apartment in Romania, and all of a sudden, I mean, you just heard sirens, and sirens was like, what is going on? So when you hear sirens, we went out and, and we looked down uh, on, on the road, and uh, I, can't, I think we were on the fifth floor in Romania. I can't remember which floor. Seventh? My wife says seventh. We're on the seventh. Um, but there was uh, two other levels. One actually started on three, so we were nine stories up. And there was this fire truck just blaring. And in the back of the fire truck, you could see the casket. And behind the fire truck, there was a procession of people. I'm nine stories up. And when the fire truck stopped sounding the horn, I could hear them wailing. It was performative to let everybody know how important this person is. Right? It, it was, look at me, look at what is going on. So when we read this in John chapter 11, and we see that Jesus is, is snorting at them, is, is scolded, we need to understand that what they're doing is they are acting like they do not believe what has clearly been revealed to them. They are wailing like those who have no hope. And so when Jesus then sees one who 
is, is, is acting in this way. Jesus, the perfect one, perfect unity with the Father, see people who have been following him, people he's been teaching, acting in a way not ordered by the truth of Scripture, the truth that Jesus has taught them, it, it, it makes him angry. Again, he's not telling people to have a stiff upward lip. That's, that's not it. You can cry in sorrow. There's, there's no shame in that. But this is grieving as those who have no hope. And when they grieve like that, what they are doing is they are giving death too much power. Because in front of them stands who? The resurrection and the life. But then we're told Jesus wept. Isn't that the same? No, it's not. Two completely different words. The word used for Jesus to weep means he shed tears. But look at also what he said, right? Because I think we read this passage too much. Once again, Jesus was deeply moved. Again, same words. Same words. He, he, he is still upset. Yes, he is moved by tears for the love that, that he has for Lazarus, but he is also moved by tears because of the love that he has for the world. He has come to redeem. And he has tears because the world is being held captive by death. So yes, at the tomb he weeps for his friend, but also in those tears are anger and righteous indignation at the enemy. The enemy that he has come to destroy. And so when Jesus is at the tomb, I need you to understand this because this is important. He is not standing at the tomb sobbing and crying as some weak, helpless human in the face of death. He stands in front of the tomb in a righteous indignation and anger that leads to tears as a champion who has come to do battle with the enemy. As a champion who will emerge victorious. And so he looks at them and he tells them as he approaches the tomb, open the tomb. And this is the third interaction, Jesus and Lazarus, and it's almost kind of anticlimactic. He says, open the tomb. They don't want to open it. It's been four days. It, 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 will, it will smell. It would not be pleasant. So Jesus told them, says, look, I told you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God again. The glory of God is going to be revealed. I do this so you believe. Martha, do you believe? Yes, I do. Then move the tomb. Move the rock because you're about to see the glory of God revealed. Go over there. Do that. And so Jesus, as they were waiting for that, he, he, he kneels down, or actually not kneels, he stands up. After they took the stone away and he lifted up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. Oh, man, one of three times Jesus prays in John. He says, I do it for them. I know, Father, that you hear me. We are, we are in perfect unity, but I do this for them. Why? So that they may believe. Really and truly. When we get finished studying the Gospel of John, if you do not have John 20, verse 20 memorized, I am going to be as indignant as Jesus and snort at you. Okay? You need to have it memorized, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in Him, you may have life in His name. That is what Jesus is doing right here. Take the tomb away. Take the stone away. I'm praying, Father, I'm doing this so that they will believe in me. 
And in verse 43, Jesus goes and he, he, he faces the tomb and he's standing there. And again, the mental picture, he's standing looking into the tomb. He is looking into the lair of the enemy. And with a loud voice, he says, for all to hear, including death, Lazarus, come out. And at that moment, Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, reminds death that it is a vanquished and defeated enemy. For in that moment, Lazarus comes out. Can you imagine the look on the people at the tomb? I wonder how many fled. I wonder what I would have done if all of a sudden this guy who's been dead for four days comes out still, not, not quite like a mummy, but still wrapped in the linen with the face cloth over. He can't see well, if at all, Probably his feet bound enough that he can shuffle or hop, okay? I mean, it, they didn't wrap the bodies like the mummies, individual legs, where he just would have strolled out. It would have been a sight to see Lazarus coming out uh, of that too. But he walks out. Why? Because the resurrection and the life spoke to death and said, Lazarus, come out. And death has to listen. Because death does not control the resurrection and the life. Death does not have power over him. And when Jesus says that, he comes out. And then I love the last little thing, right? Hey, guys, stop staring. Go take the grave clothes off of him. (laughs) Right? Go unbind him. Let him go. (laughs) And they do. But I want us to end here. In the fourth interaction. And it's Jesus and us. Because the raising of Lazarus, and just on a side note, it is not the resurrection of Lazarus. It is the raising of Lazarus. There is an important theological distinction. Because Lazarus will die again. This is not his resurrection. This is being raised from the dead but it is pointing to a resurrection that is to come. It is pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, where he will lay down his life and he will take up his life again. And Jesus can take up his life because he is, what? The resurrection and the life. See, Jesus was dependent, or excuse me, Lazarus was dependent on Jesus. Lazarus couldn't do it himself. Jesus accomplishes that himself. And so for us today, it is Jesus' resurrection that demands our attention, for it is his resurrection that is the foundation of our resurrection. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're not going to be raised like Lazarus to die again. We're going to be raised to a resurrection where we will not die again. A resurrection where Christ has already attained and won for us in coming out of the tomb on the third day, where he is never going to die. Not only because he is God, but there will never be a cross again in the future. So Jesus is is the resurrection of the life for all eternity, and we are going to be resurrected to that life as well. And it's a future hope, yes, but it is a hope that we have right now. We experience that right here and now when we say, yes, Lord, I believe. 
I believe that you are who you say we are. But there is coming a day. There is coming a future day when our bodies will be resurrection, resurrected. And every person who believes in Jesus Christ will experience that. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, and we're going to stop in just a minute, I promise you. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Man, I hope this ending is as good as I want it to be. (laughs) When Jesus returns, he's going to issue a command. Don't know what the command is. Don't know what he is going to say. And you know what? It does not matter what he says. You know why? Because the sheep will hear his voice. When he comes back at that moment, everybody who believes, when Jesus says, come out, rise, get up, it's time, whatever it is, everyone knows, every sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd, and we will come out of that tomb to be raised to a bodily resurrection and life for all eternity. Until then, we experience it now. But one day, we may just hear the words or we will hear the words, come out. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.